welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, you can turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 10. That's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, I want to welcome those who are joining online and welcome all of you guys here, especially if it's your first time. There's, a, there's an author uh, and social psychologist, and uh, as well as a college professor, his name is Jonathan Haidt. Wrote, he co-wrote a book with a, a colleague of his called The Coddling of the American Mind. And uh, what kind of the impetus we're beginning to notice a change in behavior with the students dealing with campus. And so they, they were noticing that there was a significant rise in some of their mental health struggles with anxiety, with depression, uh, feeling insecure and anxious. And uh, so being social psychologists, they decided, well, let's collect some data. Let's, let's study the data, let's analyze the data, and let's see if we can understand um, what's going on if, in fact, what we're observing is, in fact, true. And so sure enough, they began to, to dig into it and collect some data. And uh, they found some interesting things that uh, up until around the year 2010, uh, the numbers in terms of mental health issues um, around anxiety, depression, and self-harm was relatively stable. And then suddenly around 2010, the numbers began to take off, uh, particularly with young girls. So the average overall rose about 60%. Uh, I believe it was, but if you looked at just young girls that age 10 to 14 range, the numbers were skyrocketing. They were going up 180% or more. Uh, and they, they, again, began to kind of study this out, and they, they realized that there was a strong correlation between the anxiety people were feeling and social media. And so they started, again, connecting, connecting some of the dots, and they realized that in 2009, that's when the like button was introduced on Facebook and the retweet button and the share and all that stuff was happening. And, and that was, you know, it was meant to drive user engagement, but what was happening now is you had feedback based on what people thought about what you posted, how many likes you got, how many shares, how many retweets and so forth that told you something about that post. And now you had an opportunity to get a response, to get a, essentially a hit mean if you got a good response back. You got a lot of people liking it and, and so forth. And, and so they were able to kind of realize that this is what was happening here. But the problem with that is if you don't get the feedback you wanted, maybe you didn't get as many likes or as many shares or retweets or not many people re reacted to it. Instead of providing that hit of dopamine, that positive response, it would leave you feeling insecure, leave you feeling questioning and, and, and not sure about certain things. And so uh, no longer was it now just a, an opportunity to post a nice picture of yourself, uh, you know, and standing in front of the Grand Canyon or, or you know, your, your food, which I've never understood. But no longer was it about that. Now it was all about the response. Who liked it? How many people liked it? And so forth. And, and that became now uh, suddenly very, very um, uh, addictive because the affirmation sounded great, but the rejection was miserable. And so now we, we fast forward to today and what you see in social media is you, you might see a, a young girl, she's, she's posting a, a picture of herself in a bikini standing in a bathroom in front of the mirror. 
or a young man standing in front of this, you know, another bathroom mirror because something about the bathroom uh, where he's got his shirt off and he's flexing and he's showing all of his work at the gym. Now, why would they do that? What are they, what are they looking for? What do you think? Love. They're looking for love. They're looking for affirmation. They're looking for acceptance. They're looking for approval. Am I pretty enough? Am I beautiful enough? Am I strong enough? The thing is with all that enough is eventually you have to have a comparison. You have to have something that you can compare all this to. Now, the mistake would be that we, well, this is clearly a young person's problem because, you know, the numbers have kind of skyrocketed. And I would disagree with you because when I was growing up, it wasn't social media that we were comparing it to. It was called keeping up with the... Yeah, you guys grew up too, yeah. And this, this competition, right, to, to keep up with the Joneses. Oh, the Joneses got a nice car, so I need to get a nice car. Uh, the Joneses took their family on a nice vacation, and so I should do something like that. The Joneses' kids seem to be that, that perfect Christmas card family, where everything seems to, everyone get along and happy, and so kids, you should get along and be happy or I'll hurt you, right? So, so that, you know, these poor Joneses, they were always... Uh, you know, the, the competition, but, but that's what was happening. And, and so it's not a new phenomenon. In fact, I don't know a person today that doesn't struggle with it in some degree, in some, some way. Now you might think, well, then we just got to get rid of social media. And I would say that might help address the problem. See, the problem isn't social media per se. It's that sh- social media is simply amplifying the problem that's always been there. The problem of comparing ourselves, of evaluating and judging ourselves. Am I okay? See, we compare all kinds of things. We compare our body size and our body type and and the size of our muscles and the curves and the hairstyles and the the beauty that we have. And and again, the size of our houses, the clothes we wear, the job you have, the the brand of phone you own now even. All kinds of things that we're comparing ourselves, hoping that we're going to be okay. The problem is all that comparison leads to competition leads to one-upmanship, leads to kind of proving ourselves. And it's never going to be enough. Because the answer is how much is enough is always more. Because eventually what happens, maybe you are the most successful, but now you're competing against yourself. Now you got to be better than you were yesterday or last week or last month. And so it's just this never-ending cycle of trying to, to, to run harder. And, and essentially what it is, being on this treadmill, you think about a treadmill. I've seen them. I've heard about them. <laughs> I heard one's available. One's available. Barely used is what I'm told. It's phenomenal. Gently. Oh, there's nothing gentle there, my friend. No, no. Um, but the thing about a treadmill, you think about it, no matter how hard you run on it, no matter how long you run on it, how far do you go? Nowhere but tired. Nowhere but time. You're just exhausted at the end of it, right? That's this treadmill of comparing, of, of earning, of working for love and approval. That no matter how you run at this game, no matter how fast you run at this game, there's only one place you end up, and that's exhausted and burnt out. And now, fortunately, God has another way for us. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's read our passage together in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, we're going to read verses 12. 12, right? For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who can measure themselves by the 
themselves and compare themselves with understand sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. All right, let's pray. Father, this is an issue that we all struggle with to some degree. And it caused so much damage in our hearts and our lives. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, this morning that we would find freedom. Freedom to get off this treadmill. Freedom this this proving ourselves. So that, Lord Jesus, instead that we can trust you. That we could, we could find life and freedom in what you're doing in our hearts. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the freedom that you're going to bring to us, to, us, to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. I'll move this to the front. Let's see if that works. All right, so the first thing we notice in, uh, in verse 12 is that Paul's talking about these people and he says they're, they're without understanding. They're, they're, not, they're not understanding what's happening here. He, said, he says we're not going to compare or class ourselves. That word class means we're not going to try and group ourselves in the way that other people are doing it. And he says when you do that, when you're in this comparing and contrasting, you are without understanding. Literally what he's saying is you're without wisdom. Now, what do we call people who are without wisdom? Fools, right? They're foolish, right? Because ultimately, when you start to do this comparing and contrasting and trying to measure up, at the end of the day, all it results in is feeling shame. Now, shame is that belief that I'm flawed. It's that belief that there's something wrong with me, that I'm, I'm not measuring up, that there's something fundamentally wrong with me, that I'm inferior, and what it produces is maybe self-loathing, maybe even self-hatred. And, and as I've met with people, I've discovered there's really two kinds of people in this world. There are those who struggle with shame and those who struggle with a lot of shame. Right? We're all, it's, it's a battle we all face. And I, I believe that in my heart because I think it goes back to the garden. The last thing God tells us about paradise is there, there was no shame within mankind. And as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, shame entered into this world through sin. That sin is is now comparing and contrasting and showing how we're not enough. And that's what brings that shame. And so there are some who don't struggle with it as much, but we all struggle with it to some degree. So no one is experiencing a completely shame-free existence. It's just a matter of degrees. And so in Paul's letter here, he's, he's talking about these men who are really his opposition. And, and these people who are accusing him, they're trying to undermine his authority, undermine his, his, uh, his credibility, because really what they want is they want to control the church. Because for them, controlling that church means something good for them. They're getting their value and significance out of, look how I can control these people and how they're behaving so I look good myself today. And so you can almost hear their comparisons, though, when it comes to themselves. That, that I'm not perfect, no one's perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. At least I didn't do what this person did. And, and you really, you know, compared to these group over here, I'm, I'm doing really, really well. And so you have these comparisons because the thing about comparisons is, is your reference points matters, right? Who you're comparing yourself is, is important. For example, are the Maple Leafs doing well right now? Compared to Boston, 
They're doing really well. Compared to Florida, not so well, right? Uh, am, I, am I big and strong? Well, compared to, to Matt back there, not so much. But I'm pretty sure I could take baby Rowan in an arm wrestling match right now. I think I could win. Am I funny? Compared to Marco and Fred, not so much. Compared to a dead man, I'm killing it. <laughs> Am I living a holy life? Well, compared to, to Greg here, not so much. But compared to Pepsi drinking Barry, I'm way better. <laughs> right? Am I, am I kind and, com and compassionate and caring enough? Well, compared to Mother Teresa, not so much. Compared to Hitler, I like my odds. So who you compare yourself matters. And so the Pharisees of this day, or the Judaizers in Paul's time, they were comparing themselves to other people who weren't doing as well, performance-wise. And, and Jesus understood this. He understood that's what people do. It's how they feel better about themselves, right? They step on others in order to feel better about themselves. It's why we criticize and point other people's flaws out. And so in Jesus' day, these Pharisees, they were always comparing themselves to the sinners, to the tax collectors, to the prostitutes and so forth. And as long as I wasn't doing what they were doing, they thought they were okay. So Jesus, knowing how, how wrong and foolish his thinking is, he then preaches his most famous sermon, called, known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, many have looked at this Sermon on the Mount and they've kind of concluded that, well, this Sermon on the Mount, the purpose of its existence is really in order to uh, show us now how to live this Christian life. What are to be the ethos or the ethics in which we are now to live, this morality in which we're to live? But it's neither of those things. It's not even a sermon as to, as to how you might get saved. It's really trying to show to us the impossibility of being saved. See, what Jesus was doing is he was, he was preaching what was really the demanding standards of the law of Moses of the old covenant, of what was ultimately required of, this, of, of people if they thought that they could make it to heaven based on what they're going to do, how they could gain entry into the kingdom of heaven. And if you think about it, up till this day, things were going pretty good, I would say, for the people who are following Jesus around, hearing great things and miracles and so forth. But this must have been the most depressing day up to that moment. Because maybe they thought, I, I hear worms, I hear Jesus, he's going to talk about the law. Oh, thank goodness. Those 613 commands, like if we can get it down to 100, that would be fantastic. And you know, some of those 10, and maybe we get it down to seven, that, that would help me a lot. And he gets up. And, and what he does is he doesn't lower the standards, nor does he raise the standards. He simply tells us where the standard actually really is. And it must have been a smack in the face to everyone, even and including those who were the, the Pharisees. So in Matthew 5, you don't have to turn to it, but in Matthew 5 and verse 20, what we see here is, is Jesus essentially summarizing the issue here. He says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about that. The Pharisees were the, the best looking, most moral, best performing group. And Jesus says, you got to pass them. Even they are not good enough if you have hope to enter the kingdom of heaven based on what you do. And then he goes on and he, he says things like, well, you've heard you shouldn't commit murder. But I say to you, if you hate anyone, you're guilty of murder. See, he didn't, again, they were lowering the standard. 
I haven't killed anyone, so it's okay. I've dreamt about it. I've thought about it, but I haven't actually done it. Or he goes on to say, if you even lust after another person, you're guilty of adultery. The standards become so impossible. He says things like, if, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. You're to love your enemies, all of them, unconditionally, no matter what. You're to give and to do it with perfect motives. And don't judge and condemn others ever. So it would have been so depressing because everyone sitting in that crowd that day would have realized it's impossible. Now, the disciples being the disciples, it took them a couple more years to figure that out. But eventually they did. Just shortly before Jesus goes to the cross and, they, and, and Jesus meets the rich young ruler and they realize even he wasn't good enough. And they say, Jesus, if he's not good enough, it's impossible. And what does Jesus say? What's impossible for man is only possible for God. You see, the standard is summarized really in Matthew 5, 48, when Jesus says, be perfect. That's it. As comparison, right? Reference point, as my heavenly father is perfect. That's all. You just got to be God and then you'll be good enough. No chance. But what do we do? We change the reference point. And we say things, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. At least I didn't do what so-and-so did. Compared to this person, I'm actually doing really great. And we're doing the exact same things that those Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day. And we're fools. Quite frankly, that's it. We're fools because we're in this, this comparison trap, this treadmill. So what's, what's our answer then? Well, verse 13 Paul writes this, he says, but we will not boast beyond our measure. That word measure there is the, is the Greek word metron. It's where we get the word meter from. And it, it literally means that, a measure, a meter. It's sort of evaluate. We will not evaluate, judge ourselves based on others. Instead, he says that we will base it off of the sphere which got a portion. That, my translation of sphere, you might say, is a little bit different. The Greek word there is canon. It's, it's where we get the, the word canon from, not the, the thing that fires the, the balls, but rather when we talk about the canon of scripture. Or if you're a movie fan and, and comic book fan, they talk about the canon of the, the, the story. It's this idea of, a, it's, the word canon literally means a boundary. What belongs, what doesn't belong. That's what he's saying here. And so Paul says, what we're going to do is we're going to judge ourselves. We're going to measure ourselves, not based on others and what they do, but within this boundary of what God has done, of what God's accomplished. We're going to stay within that boundary, within that sphere. And what he's essentially saying is we're not going to add anything to it. You see, it, it's, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus what I do, plus my past, plus what I don't do, plus what others think of me, plus of my accomplishments, my successes, or my failures. is based on Jesus. It's only what he has done. And yet, we don't judge it that way often. Let me, let me illustrate to you this way. Uh, imagine a relative passes away, leaves to you uh, a treasure chest an old fashioned treasure. Now this treasure chest is beat up and it's nicked and it's got all kinds of, of scratches and deep gouges into it. And you're kind of look at it and you're like, well, I don't, I don't really know what to do with it. 
but it would be good to know how much it's worth. So would you take this, this antique treasure chest? Would you go and ask the Walmart greeter? Hey, you guys sell things. What do you think this is worth? Would that make sense? Would you, would you ask your auto mechanic? I mean, you're used to building things, work with your hands. You, you must have some idea of what this is worth. What about your neighbor? I mean, they, they cut the grass. They have a good home. They might be really smart. Well, maybe, maybe, you, maybe you go ask your friend from grade five. Would you do that? No. You're looking at me like I'm a fool, right? Why would we not do that? They're clueless. They have no idea how to evaluate the value of this treasure chest. So who would you go to? You'd probably go to an expert of some sort, right? Someone who's, who knows what, you're, what you've got, someone who's studied this, someone who's got experience in it, some kind of an antique dealer, right? And so you, you bring this treasure chest to them and they, they begin to look at it and they, and they think about it and they go, well, what have others said? Well, others have looked at it and they, they went online and they found some other chests in, on Amazon and they said, well, about $100. That's what they think it's worth. Because, you know, a new one's about buck 50, 150. So use one, even though it's not gently, $100. Well, the expert's looking at it and he's, he's opening it up. He's examining it. And he says to you, you know what you got here? You got one of the five remaining treasure chests that belongs to the Dread Pirates Roberts. I know, inconceivable. <laughs> inconceivable. Right. But you, he says, you've got it. You've, you've got this thing's worth millions of dollars. Would you turn around and I'll sell it for a hundred dollars? Cause that's what your friends told you. Who are you going to listen to in that moment? Your best friend from grade five, your neighbor, the Walmart greeter, the auto mechanic. No, why not? Cause they don't know what they're talking about. You're going to listen to the experts. And you won't settle for anything less than what the expert tells you. Well, that needs to be applied in our lives. You see, when it comes to evaluating who you are, where do we go? We go to our neighbor. We go to the kid in grade five who bullied us. We go to the, the spouse or the girlfriend or the, or the boyfriend who rejected us and walked away from us. We go to the person who abused us and hurt us. We, we go to those people and let them tell us who we are. We go to those people and we let them assign worth to us. And it's as foolish as going to a Walmart greeter to ask them about this treasure chest. What we need to do is we need to go to the only person, the only person that's an expert when it comes to understanding people and their worth. And that's the person who made us. That's the person who created us. And that's Jesus. That's God himself. And we need to let him be the one to tell us. And you know what's beautiful? He knows every detail about you. Right down to the number of hairs on your head. He knows all of your past, all the things you did, all the mistakes you made, all the things that you should have done but didn't do. He knows all your thoughts. He knows every word that you're, you have said and you're even going to say. He knows you inside and out. And he's made his judgment on you already. And that judgment is essentially the price he paid for you and I. 
that price he paid for you and I is Jesus. That's the value he's put on you. And so what I, what I thought about when I was sitting here going to the passage is I thought about, let's make some boastful statements, right? Because Paul says that he's only going to boast in the sphere, within that canon, that boundary that God's given to him. And so there's some boastful statements. And, and so the first one I want you to, to, to turn to is, uh, and it's worth turning to, is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 29. We're going to start there. And we're going to read verse 31. And, and listen to what Paul writes here. He says, so that no man may boast before God. Meaning we, we're not going to brag to God. We're not going to show up. I mean, think about it. If you were to, to pass away and show up and stand at the pearly gates with St. Peter, are you going to hand him your resume? Look at all the good things I've done, Jesus. I mean, check out those years from, from 2007 to 2011. I was productive as all get out. Like, is that what we're going to do? No, no man's going to boast before God based on what he's done. Verse 30, by God's doing, by what God has accomplished, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what we're going to boast in. We're going to boast in what God has done. And so as I sat there and was praying this week about how do I, how do I convey this? I felt God say to me, tell them who they are. And immediately, I just start writing statements out. And it, and it just came to me so quickly, just writing out these statements about who you and I are. And, and I would even add that these statements have the level of thus saith the Lord. Notice I use King James there because it's serious now, right? Thus saith the Lord. Now, I say that because every one of these statements, it started with a Bible verse. There's a verse, and then this is what it says. And so there's 20 statements that I want us to go through together. And, and, and the first one is this, based on this passage in 1 Corinthians 1.30, that you and I were secure in Christ. See, it was by God's doing that you're in Jesus. It wasn't by what you did. It wasn't based on anything you accomplished. It's by God's doing you're in Christ Jesus. And no one, no one can change that. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things past, nor things to come, nor any created thing, which includes you and I, by the way, can separate you from his love. You and I are secure, safe in him. Next one. You are right on time. Philippians 1 verse 6. I love this passage here. Is that, that God who began this work in you, he's the one that's going to complete it. It's his work. Now you're a work in progress though. Amen. You haven't arrived yet. Amen. Even P even Paul said that about himself, but God who began this work, he's going to complete it, which means that where you are is right where you're supposed to be. But I still struggle with some things and I, I I'm still not quite sure about all these things. That's okay. You're growing up. You're maturing. I remember when my, my, my Caleb was much younger and I'd say to him, Caleb, you're such a warrior. You're a man, strong man of God. And, and he sat there as like a seven-year-old goes, but I'm not that strong. I'm only seven. I said, I know. But for as a seven, that's where you're at. That's what I'm expecting. I'm not expecting a 27-year-old strength. I'm not expecting you to fight like a 27-year-old. But as a seven-year-old, I see your heart. I see how you fight for your friends and love people. Right where you're supposed to be. And God is maturing you. 
Next one, Romans 5, 8. You are loved just as you are. Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated, proved his love for us. It's not when you got your act cleaned up. It's not when you, you figured life out. It's not even when you came to Jesus for the first time. No, while you were that di dirty, rotten, filthy sinner who was an enemy of God, who was attacking God, he loved you then. He loves you as you are, not for who you might be one day, for who you are. The next one, Romans 5.1, you are now at peace with God. Having been justified, we have peace with God. We're not at war with him anymore. He's not against you. You're on the same team. You're on the same side with him now. He's not out to get you. Next one, Romans 5.18, you are righteous and justified by what Jesus has done by his work on the cross, by that one act of righteousness that Jesus accomplished, you and I have been made righteous. That word righteous means to be in right standing, made accepted, made approved. Justified is simply the, to be made righteous. That's all it means, that you've already been made approved. You've already been made acceptable. Again, not by what you've done. Romans 5.19 says it's by his obedience, by God's obedience, by Jesus' obedience. Next one, Hebrews 10, 14, you've been made perfect. By one offering, for all time, you and I have been made perfect. Well, I, I, I grew up from time to time. I don't make, I make mistakes from time to time. Yep, I knew that about you. You didn't have to inform me of that. I know that. Your perfection isn't based on what you do. It's not based on your performance. It's based on how you were made, how you were born. And God made you perfect despite the fact that you don't live perfectly all the time because you are not a product of what you do, but you're a product of who God made you. Next one, Romans 8.1, you are never condemned. Literally, Romans 8.1, there is not one single condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus will never condemn you. Doesn't matter what you did last night or last week or last month, or what you did 25 years ago and you swore no one would ever find out. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. And I never will condemn you because I've already taken care of it. Now he may discipline you, but that's what a father does, but he'll never punish you. Not once. Next one, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you are a new creation. The old is gone, right? Crucified with Christ. Who you used to be before you knew Jesus is gone out of existence. You got more than just a new makeover. You got exchanged. The old self is crucified and buried and is gone, no longer exists, passed away. Behold, the new has already come. You're a new person, born again with a new heart, a new spirit, a new identity, belonging to Jesus, belonging to God. In fact, that new person was created in the likeness of God himself with his holiness and his righteousness. And that's the truth. The next one is Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ set you free, so you are free to be yourself. I don't know of any greater freedom than to just be you. That's it. Nothing to prove. You don't have to act like someone else in order to gain acceptance. You just get to be you. 
You don't need to conform to other people's expectations. You just get to be who you are. Ephesians 1, 7, you are completely forgiven. Yeah, that sin you just thought about, forgiven. And not covered. That's an old covenant term. That's, what, that's all that blood of lambs and goats can do. They can only cover. You know what Jesus did? Took it away. Took it away. It's gone. As far as the east is from the west. It says, it's quoted in, it says in Jeremiah, it's quoted twice in the book of Hebrews. I will remember your sins no more. It doesn't say on judgment day. No more. You are forgiven. Next one, Matthew 28 and verse 20. You are never alone. Right? Jesus says there, it's the last verse of, <clears throat> of, of Matthew's gospel. He says, I will be with you always. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll never abandon you. You're never going to be an orphan. I'm always with you. I'm always right there. <clears throat> I'll never abandon you based on what you do or don't do. <clears throat> Next one. Romans 8, verse 16, you are a beloved child of the King of Kings. We get to call him Abba. Literally, that means Dada. It's, it's not this formal father. It's this intimate, young, young child with their father. In fact, that's what was so um, blasphemous, so heretical when Jesus talked about God as being his Abba. No reverence. You need distance. No, no, no. Come to him like a little child. Jump into his lap. You are the most beloved son, the most beloved daughter of the king of kings. Next one, John 15, verse 14. You're God's friend. Sometimes we think, well, he loves me because he's, he's got to love me. I mean, he, he had his son, Jesus, died for me. So what choice does God have now? He's, he's contractually obligated to love me. Me, maybe, but more than that, he actually likes you. You're not my slave. You're my friend. And the difference is the slave doesn't understand the heart and the mind of the master. He's just doing what he's told. But as a friend, we converse, we communicate, we walk together. We get to know each other's hearts. Jesus actually enjoys hanging out with you. In fact, he couldn't imagine life without it. The next one, Ephesians 2, verse 10, you are God's workmanship or you are God's masterpiece. Think about this. You've been created in a unique way. Perfect. As just God designed it. His masterpiece. And that's why this comparing thing doesn't work. You see, if you were to compare me, there, there are countless other better speakers, uh, better pastors, better teachers out there. There are better, better fathers, better husbands, better friends. I, I, I'm not even in the top 25 percentile probably if you were to do all these comparisons. But you know one thing that I can do better than anybody else in this world? Be Christ and Ross Gilbert. Nobody can beat me on that one. And that's who I am. And what's beautiful is I can accept that and I don't have to try to be the next anyone. I don't have to be the next Charles Stanley, next Frank Friedman, next John Lynch, next anyone. I can just be me, the masterpiece that God created me to be. Now, I may not be everyone's cup of tea, 
And that's okay. Because I'm Jesus's friend. I'm the one he loves, as we sang this morning. Next one, Philippians 2 and verse 30, we're free to risk. This is a beautiful story of a man named Epaphroditus who literally gambled. I know it's gambling in the Bible, I know, but he literally gambled his life, it says. He could risk everything in order to further the gospel. And what that means for you and I is we can risk failure. We can risk trying things that are out of our comfort zone because, quite frankly, you don't have that much riding on anything. You really don't. You don't have that much riding on, on success that you have to do this in order to, to gain something, to accomplish something. No, no, you're good as who you are. So you and I can risk now all kinds of, of different behaviors. That's what it was for me as an engineer in counseling and then a counselor going into being a pastor is, is this great risk. And the fear is, well, God, what if I fail? And he says, you will. You will. It's okay. But your failure doesn't change who you are. So you can risk now. The next one, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, says that you and I are a temple of the most high God. You're a temple of the most high God. That the Holy Spirit has permanently joined himself to you. You are one spirit with him. Where he goes, you go. Where you, no matter what. Sorry, where you go, he goes. No matter what. Because you're one with him. You're in him. You belong to him. You're a holy temple today. All the time. Next one, 2 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1, you're a saint. Not a sinner. You're not a sinner saved by grace. A sinner died, right? It's crucified. You were born again. Saint. Holy one. Set apart. And I could have quoted 63 verses talking about you and I as being saints, being holy ones. And that's how Paul constantly addressed all the churches to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Ephesians, in Ephesus, to the saints in Colossae, to the saints in Philippi, over and over and over again. To the saints. Next one, Romans 6, 6 and 7. You are free from sin's dominion over you. Hallelujah. That doesn't mean you're not, you'll never sin again. You just don't have to anymore. That sin or the flesh has lost its control. It's lost its power over us because you died to sin. So that would no longer be your master. So you could be free and now be joined to Jesus. So when sin comes a knocking, I can say, no, you don't control me anymore. And I can live trusting Jesus, belonging to Jesus. The next one, Galatians 3, verse 25, you're free from ever comparing yourself or needing to measure up. See, whether the standard's another person or is simply a law, you and I have been set free. We're no longer under the, that tutor, that teacher, that pedagogos. We're no longer under the law, ever. There's no standard by which you have to be evaluated by. There's no standard by which you need to measure up to. You are loved and accepted in Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, I won't be as good as someone else when you compare my behavior, my performance, but I'm still the one that Jesus loves. I'm still okay. I'm still righteous. I'm still accepted. And I can rest in that powerful truth. No more doing, proving, earning to accomplish anything. Instead, now what I do 
is just a natural byproduct of who I am. And so the reality is I can get on with living now because I'm not trying to prove anything. And then the last one here that we've got is Ephesians 3 and verse 20, that you and I, you are able to do more than you can even imagine. Paul was a, a simple Jew born in Tarsus, raised under this pharisaical system, probably had no idea what he was going to become. And today, in my opinion, he stands as the second most influential person in all history, right behind Jesus. His writings have gone around the world. He probably had no idea. I mean, at the time, he had, he had taken the gospel to the edges of the known world, further than anyone else had, had, you know, ever could have imagined. And now it's been around the world countless times, his writings. Why? Because God was able to do more than Paul could even imagine. And that same God, that same power now lives where? In you and me. It wasn't about Paul. It wasn't Paul that made him so special. It was Christ in Paul that was so powerful and special. And that same Jesus now living in you and I can do more than we could ever imagine. You know, we could spend hours going through more of these statements. There's so many more. Those, they literally just boom, 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 came down. And I, and I, I thought about changing them from you are to I am. But God said, no, you tell them who they are. So that's why they're you are statements. But the challenge to you and I now is for you to make them I am statements. See, what we're told is receive these truths. Right? To receive it, to take hold of them, to own these truths, because they're true of who you are right now. And the challenge is, will I believe it? Will I actually accept it? It doesn't change the reality of it. Whether I, whether I accept the value of that treasure chest as being worth millions of dollars doesn't change its actual value. Do you understand that? I might believe, no, it's, only, it's useless. It's only worth $100. It's still worth millions. Value is determined. It's fixed and high, some might say. And that's who you are. And so the question is, will you believe it? Will you accept it? Will you acknowledge it? And so I would encourage you to, to go back through those statements and read through them and replace the you are with I am. Let me close with this one last passage. It's in, in the gospel of John chapter eight. And I think this is Jesus's challenge to us with, with these statements. Beginning in verse 31. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. You are just truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. If you abide in my word. Another translation says, if you hold to my teachings. And that's what we're called to do. Doesn't matter what you feel. Doesn't matter what your gut, your emotions are telling you. Because that's not where the truth lies. The truth is what God says. It's not mattering what other people say and their opinion of you and their disappointments or the expectations they put on you. The truth isn't what God says. It doesn't matter what you've done, what's in your past, or what's even, even in your future. It's not where the truth is. The truth isn't what God says. 
So I challenge you, I implore you, I urge you, hold to these truths. Let them become self-evident that you are loved, you are secure, you're accepted, and stop comparing yourselves. Stop being foolish and put your eyes on Jesus and what he has done because that is who you are. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the powerful truth of this work that you've done on the cross. The truth of who you've made us, independent of what we've done. We believe it. We believe something that's so good, thing and the opposite. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would, that we would risk trusting you, that we would put our faith in you and what you've accomplished, and that we would hold to this truth and we would see your power and know your freedom. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.